The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. So the title of my talk tonight is The Tyranny of the Ego. And there's a little bit of hyperbole there, as you see, but I just like the way that sounded. So. <laughs> um, but I do want to talk about the ego in our practice and the impact and how it can really impede our progress on the path. The term ego is not a term found anywhere in, in Buddhist literature. It's a, it's a Western modern term, as you probably know. Um, it, uh, about 40, year, 40 years ago, it sort of found its way into Western Buddhism as a way of talking about the self or non-self, and I'll explain that a little bit more in a second. Um, but it's, it's also not the ego that we talk about in psychology, where you know, Freud talked about the superego, which was sort of the conscience, and the id was sort of un, unbridled impulse, and the ego was sort of the mediating part of that system. So it's not, that's not the ego we're going to talk about. Um, nor are we going to talk about uh, when it's used to say, oh, he's, he's an egotist or something, someone's very full of himself. That's not the context either. It'll, it really is going to talk about uh, address rather than the sense of self or, or how to how do we talk that. So, so you remember that, well, so 2,500 years ago, the Buddha taught for 40 years. There was no written language in those days. It was an oral tradition, and that lasted for almost approximately like 500 years. And, um, and then they began to write stuff down. But they used a lot of one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, lots of numbered lists, which I think was probably in the mind just to remember as they passed it down to the next generation of monks and, and lay people. But anyway, you may remember the three marks of existence that the Buddha talked about, Dukkha, which is suffering, dissatisfaction, impermanence, and then this notion of self or no self. And that's what I want to try to tackle tonight. It's always been a little bit of a challenge in, in my own practice to, to understand that there's lots of opinions, there's lots of stuff written on this question of no self or, or non-self. So, um, but that's, that, when, when the term ego is used in, in Buddhism, it's really referring to the, the self in the sense that we might have of a firm, solid self. So it's really, it's really suggesting something which is, uh, can be a real um, stumbling block on the path, as I said a ago. The, the Pali word for, for no self is anatta, uh, and, that's, and, and this term and this concept has probably been debated since the time of the Buddhists. Books written about it. So I'm going to try to try to dissect that a little bit tonight and see if I can lend some understanding to it um, because I, I hear often that it's it's a, it's a tough tough concept for a lot of us. The uh, and I'll probably use the terms that are changed with self and ego, but but the idea is is that this ego, this thing that we think is a solid, permanent self, is also that place from which greed, hatred, delusion, uh, self-hatred, all these other negative sorts of experiences arise. You know, they, they come up out of that sort of sense of this is me, and I've got to be right, and I've got to be correct, and I've got to you know, win, and I've got all these things. So that's really the ego in the Buddhist sense, that sense of, sense, sense of solid self that's, that's uh, creating that. 
And so it's really become an umbrella term for you know grasping, claiming, longing for recognition, um, you know, really an impediment to seeing things clearly as they really are, really seeing the truth. Uh, there's there's where that that solid that that illusion illusion of a solid self uh, gets in the way. Um, this is from the Connected Discourses of the Buddha, and he says. And what bhikkhus, bhikkhus is the Pali word for monks, monk, uh, and what bhikkhus is attachment? There are four, there are these four kinds of attachment. Attachment of sensual pleasures, attachment of views, attachment of rules and vows, and attachment of words of self. Attachment of words of self. This is called attachment. So there he's saying that if we cling to this notion of self, solid self, uh, and, and of course the, the noble truths have to do with clinging attachment, grasping, as a, as a kind of source of suffering in our lives. And this is where I, I've struggled with it some over the years, and he's, he's not saying, I don't believe, that there's no sense of me. I mean, obviously we all walk around with a sense of me, I. Um, but typically, we don't recognize the impermanence of that me. There's the solid, we have this illusion of the solid self. We don't really see the impermanence of the ever-changing notion of that sense of self, of me. And the paradox here, I think, is that the more we trust in our awareness, trust our, our heart as we, as we get, begin to awaken, uh, we begin to move away from that ego, that sense of solid self. And it's there that we find ease, we find grace, we find uh, true happiness once we can um, set aside this notion of a solid self. So I would suggest that qualities like striving for perfection, for constant self-improvement, which is something we do in the West quite a bit, for acceptance by all of those with ego-driven kinds of and I think one reason we cling to this is because it gives us a sense of control. Again, I think that it's an illusion, but it does give us a sense of being in control of our world and our circumstances. We do need love predictability and love things to be as we want them to be. But in order to feel in control, we have to deny the fact of impermanence. The truth of impermanence cannot exist with the sense of our being in control because things are always changing. And that includes everything we run into in our lives. It includes what goes on inside of us. It includes our family members, whatever. But it's that ego that wants fixed plans. They want to know this is going to happen tomorrow, this is going to happen next week. And we can only suffer if that doesn't happen. So you know, if I've got this plan about how I want things to be, and I want to go on a picnic, and it rains, and then I'm suffering because, oh gosh, my plan of having a beautiful picnic is just undone by the plan. So we still need that sense of me in the conventional sense um, to interact with people in the world. I mean, we can't, we don't go around with no self in the sense that, you know, there's nothing there to interact with each other, uh, with family members and so forth. But it's when that notion of self becomes overgrown, becomes inflexible, and it loses its fluidity, it loses the ability to kind of go with the change, that's when we begin to get into trouble. 
because we're always trying to grab onto it, grab onto it. Don't want to get onto it, don't want to get this, don't want to do that. So the object is not to kill the ego or, or, or get rid of it, it's to understand what it is with clarity and then adapt to it. Adapt to that which is uh, wanting, wanting permanence, wanting predictability. And I think in some of the teachings, this notion of ego, again, the solid sense of self, really produces these thoughts, which I think for all of us can be harmful thoughts of me and mine. You know, it creates things like selfish desire, craving, attachment, hatred, ill will, conceit, pride, egotism, other defilements, impurities, and problems. You may recall the um, the eight worldly winds. There's a vision of a list of eight things that the Buddha talked about. Praise and blame, sort of being the two poles. Um, gain and loss. Fame and shame. And pleasure and pain. But again, I would suggest that all of those have to do with the ego, with that sense of that's what wants the pleasure and not the pain. That was which wants the gain and not the loss. It's how we sort of keep score. It's how we think we're going to be happy. If I win more than I lose, if I gain more than I lose, then, then I should be okay. But by coming at it from the sense of impermanence, I think we can begin to really, it really becomes an antidote to the world We can begin to lower our reactivity. But it really is another opportunity in our practice to, to wake up, to wake up to the reality of the sense of self, to wake up to the reality of, of who, who are we really. So the question becomes, how do I, do I bounce back and forth between these worldly winds all the time, or do I just watch them happen without getting identified? Do I just watch them happen without, because if I get identified with them, I'm going to be reactive. Going to react to they're, they're going to be driving the bus. But if I can just observe them and not get pulled in and identify with them, then it's going to be much easier. My, my reactivity is going to come down. My equanimity is going to go up. I'm just going to feel you know, more inner peace, more, more sense of, of, of that in my life. So if we could, let's do just a, a brief reflection. And this is an eye open, uh, eyes open reflection. So just take a moment and look at, look at your hands. And ask yourself, are these hands really me? Is this the me? And what if we lost our hands in an accident? Would, would I still be myself? Would I still be me? Or look at your legs and ask the same question. If I didn't have these legs, Am I still me? So we go through this process and it comes down, so what part of me is really me? What, what are we talking about? What is it that if I no longer had it, I'd no longer be myself? What if, I know I'm talking about death here, I'm talking about why? You know, is there any part of the body that if it was gone, I would know with certainty that I was no longer a me. 
And folks will often say, oh, it's my brain. That's the me. The me is in my brain. It makes me who I am. But what specifically in our brain makes the me? I mean, is it our thoughts? Is it our physiology? Is it our autonomic nervous system? What is it in that system? And again, I think you know, there's no firm me there either. Or is it our personality, our memories, our values, our abilities, our skills? Is that, is that the me? Is that the solid self? Or is it the labels we give ourselves? Young, old, um, sick, healthy, smart, dumb, Democrat, Republican, rich, poor, whatever. Is that, is that what we find? Again, those things can change. So the question becomes, if, if, if we have no labels, would we still be us? Take all the labels away. Female, white, wealthy, whatever, whatever it is. Because the things that we think make us who we are are only the parts of who we are, but none of it, none of them alone is who we are. And those parts are subject to impermanence, to constant change. There's no solid permanent self. It's an ever-changing experience. And once we recognize that and sort of yield to it, then that's a real opportunity for ourselves to, to diminish. So another analogy, think about a car. If we take the car apart, separate all the components, put it out in our garage, none of these parts alone constitute a car. By all these parts, then where's the car? Because the vehicle car has all those parts working together. But they're constantly changing. They're wearing out, they need replacement, the oil needs changing, the lights go out. It's not, even the car, it's not a permanent sense of what it is there. It's this, it's this combination of ever changing components. And this is not stable, it's not fixed. It is actively dynamic, and it's ever-changing, as with all things that are important. You're not the same person here now that you were this morning. You're 12 hours older, or maybe you, whatever the changes were, subtle physiological changes that were happening all the time. So then how does this notion of no self, or, or uh, no no ego, apply in our day-to-day lives, and why, why is it useful? Well, as I said a few minutes ago, at the most basic level, it helps us tame our reactivity. It really helps us get a handle on our reactivity. It moves us off of this autopilot to an awareness of the present moment where all phenomena arise and pass away continually. And that's really the truth of experience. It's ever changing, rising, passing away. And when we deny that truth, we're going to get blindsided. We're going to get kicked. Because something's going to come along and remind us that there's no permanence, there's no solid experience, there's no solid self. We get sick. Who plans for that? We do what we can. I got a flu shot today. You know, hopefully I will get the flu. Not so long, but that's the price we pay. So consider the next time someone offends you, 
or says something you don't like. We can ask ourselves, what part or parts of me have really been offended? Because if someone offends us, the first thing is to be reactive, to push back, to have a strong reaction. But what if I'm asking the question, where's the offense here? Hard as my brain without. That's what I mean about if we recognize the truth of no self, we can better manage our reactivity. And if I'm reactive, is that the result of the causes and conditions of my life up till now? Is that where that comes from? So if we really dig down on this concept, I think it can really be an important tool for beginning to set our ego, set the notion of putting itself aside. Of recognizing that it's an illusion and that that which I think is a solid me really is not. My sense of self that makes me think who I am is only a part of me. It's not the whole thing. That's elusive. That's, as I said, ever changing. So I think this can be a really powerful and important part of our practice. I know personally in the past, I was highly active, tended to, tended to take everything personally. And I just expended a tremendous amount of energy managing that me, that self, that ego, just trying to keep it under wraps and, and, and just you know, tremendous amount of energy just trying to control it, just trying to control how I was in the world, how I thought I needed to be, how other people thought I needed to be, how my family growing up thought I needed to be. And that's where that stuff comes from. You, you grew up in a situation where there's a lot of emphasis on uh, succeeding, on appearances, on whatever. You know, that's just feeding that, that need to have that sort of permanent ego, that I am this person. And, and one of the things that really gets in the way of our seeing this more clearly is, is the shame that we feel if we deviate from that script, from that notion of who we should be. Because somehow if I'm not that, then I, I'm, I'm likely to feel ashamed if I'm this. Because the implicit message is this is bad, and this notion over here is good and it's not. And our ego really pushes back against honestly allowing people to see us. I mean, especially in our culture, it's so performance-based. It's so appearance-based. I mean, corporations spend millions of dollars trying to feed us that stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the things that's going to destroy their planet. But they always want us to get the new car, get the new clothes, get the new whatever, get the white teeth. So it's everywhere. It's, it's part of the culture. And many of us grew up with those kinds of messages. Often, when I talk to trees, folks will come to me and say, I have this major profound experience. And I really don't know how to put it into words. And they'll say things like, I just felt my ego dissolve from the moment in the city. Or I felt like I was pure awareness. I didn't have a sense of where I ended and someone else 
But that's just a little taste of that sense of transcending that notion of itself. It really can move us out of that sense of, of and I think that's one of the benefits of all of the is really begin to explore that kind of question and really experience it first. And it doesn't last, and hopefully we don't claim to it and expect it to last, but it, it's really a way of seeing beyond this notion of solid self. Because for that moment, those moments, there is nothing. Yes. You mentioned winds of shame. 
create worldly winds. Is that W-I-N-S or W-I-N-D-S? D-S, winds. You get blown between loss and gain, praise and blame. Yes, Bill. Jeff, can you talk about you know, applying mindfulness? Obviously, is going to be a big part of making progress. But can you can you help us with things in real life that either mantras or places where we can go or, or to, to remind ourselves? early in the stage of, of uh, interaction with unpleasant or difficult situations that we don't yeah, it's, it's challenging in that I think there's not a sort of specific approach to it, Bill, but, but there is this, you know, I like to work backwards from cultivating equanimity, reducing reactivity, and then I can see you know, where that's hitting me when, I, when, when, when someone offends me. Then, then it's an opportunity to sort of see, well, where's that hitting? Where's that, you know, where's, where's the reactivity trying to come up with me, that sort of thing. But it's equally important, I think, in terms of the mindfulness, is just to, to, to reflect on that as we said, I mean, just sort of reflect on any of the sort of analogies that I spoke about. Because it's, it's, it's an elusive concept, I think. Impermanence is pretty understandable, suffering is pretty understandable, this one is, this was this could be a bit of a commitment. All right. I, I think I get, if, if I can, I think I get the concept of no self. And the longer I sit and become mindful of my thoughts, the more annoyed I become with the thoughts. Um, so many of them have to do with how I perceive this. That annoys me. There's some reactivity there, I suppose. Um, but I'm wondering, so if I have this basic understanding, how do I then apply it to, and maybe that was Bill's question as well, but, but how do I apply it to this basic, I guess it's a basic insecurity, or I don't know, not following my parents' rules. I, you know, I don't know what it is, but how do I make those stop? Well, I don't think you can stop. But first of all, you recognize they're not you, right? They're just chatter. And secondly, we just learn to watch them without identifying. I mean, the thing that hooks us is we identify with them rather than just watch them rise and pass away. Because I constantly have this chatter, a lot of self-judgment going on. Um, but the more I can see it is that and just kind of watch it and not get pulled into it, then the less power it sort of seems to hold over. I'm trying to get overly identified with the chat. Yes? I have a uh, basic question back on meditation, if, if you will. Uh, I see, at least where I am in meditation, there's two sides of either I, I'm present with my breath, and, and that's what I'm conscious of or I'm lost in a story, or a thought, or planning, or what have you. But when I hear you talk about watching the thoughts arise and fall away, that implies there's some middle ground. Could you talk about that middle ground? 
the basic rule of thumb, I think, is that we welcome whatever comes up during our meditation, whether that's chatter, whether that's a strong sensation, a strong emotion, but we just want to watch it and not identify with it. I mean, that, the part that hooks us is when we get identified, this is what this means, and this is who I am, or, or this chatter is really about you know, the truth of me. And, and I love that analogy. Now, I don't know who first used it, but uh, imagine the thoughts are just clouds in the sky passing over. You're just watching them. You're not doing anything else. You're not arguing with them or getting identified with them. You're just watching them pass through. Because they come and they go, they come and they go. I think we can get into this trap of trying to suppress those thoughts or, or push them away. And, and that sort of, you know, mindfulness is just letting that awareness just land there and just welcome whatever comes up without getting identified with it. Which is a real challenge. I mean, I've, I've certainly struggled with that in my own practice. But it, it's really important. And the beauty of retreats, actually, I'll put in another plug for retreats, is that we're quiet longer. We, we really can begin to see this more clearly. Um, the thoughts slow down. We can watch them more easily because they tend to just get a little slower and little quiet. And, and, and it's really a way to, to, to move the practice. Yes, so you're not saying to evaluate the thoughts, and because I was getting, well, I have these thoughts now, I need to tell myself, don't identify with that, don't be reactive, and then I'm thinking, and then I thought that the deal was to, whenever I have the thoughts, like you said, let them go, and then just come back to my breath, because the way I usually do things is I try to figure things out, and, and that's not, yeah, that doesn't give me any relief. Right. When I come back, I just... Yeah, just notice and then come back to the breath. Because if you're trying to figure them out, then you become identified with them. You're in some kind of an argument. What does this mean? What does that mean? Is this true about me? Is that true about me? Or is this, that's just chatter. That's just chatter. Come back to the breath. It's really about learning to focus, learning to quiet the noise in our brains, and, and really achieve some of these. That's the wonderful gift. Thinking about that, a year ago, June, when my mother 
died, it was sort of like, well, where did she go? I mean, you know, there's the corpse, but it was even the next step in that process because there was no herd there anymore. I mean, there was this vehicle, this vessel, but there was no herd there. And that's what you suggested, the really good way to think about that. Yeah, this is a tough topic. I mean, just, you know, maybe I'll have the final word on it. I'm still struggling with it some way in practice. But it's an important one, and I think it's worth the effort to delve into it. And there's tons of it on it, and there are lots of different things, but it's, it's pretty juicy once you get it. So, we'll get into So, yes, I'm sorry. Thank you.